Let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Phil Mickelson had a rough year. His wife Amy and his mother both had been battling recently discovered breast cancer. It was April 10, 2010, and Phil Mickelson was leading by two strokes. His ball was lying on about six feet from the hole on the final hole of the Masters Championship in Augusta, Georgia. The tournament had already been decided, even though he hadn't hit his last shot. And as he walked up to the final green, the crowd erupted with a standing ovation and greeted him with a standing ovation all the way till he got onto the green. And with the tip of the cap, Mickelson acknowledged the crowd to their great delight. He would go on to make that birdie putt and win the tournament by three strokes. Although the tournament was not over, the crowd cheered as if it were. They'd been, they had uh, had several setbacks, but it was at this time that he stood strong. He stood as the champion, even though he hadn't hit his final stroke. There have been some major setbacks to Satan and his desire to overcome the king of all kings and to take final control over the world. He has not been able to do that. He has desired to be the king of all kings, Satan has. But there have been some big setbacks, haven't there? When Jesus was born, that was a pretty big setback. He tried to have him killed through King Herod and was unsuccessful. When Jesus arose from the tomb, there must have been great shouting in heaven even though the kingdom had not finally come. The tournament, so to speak, was not finished. Yet there is great cheering. And there, we are told, is great cheering in heaven every time one believer, one person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. There's great cheering. The millennial kingdom has not come at this point in the book of Revelation, but there is no louder cheer in all of history up until that point than when the seventh trumpet sounds. And they cheer as if the battle is over as if Christ has already won, even though He hasn't finally won. The coming victory is here. The raptured church and the angels recognize that it's only a matter of time here in Revelation chapter 11 before the millennial kingdom comes in all of its glory and the king of that kingdom comes in all of His glory. We're going to look at verses 14-19 through this morning as we continue our study in this book. I'll begin reading in verse 14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. And then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, 
the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple, and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Towards the end of the tribulation, we are seeing that God enacts His judgment on His enemies. And it will be at this point in heaven when it will be clear to all those in heaven there will no more be cries of, How long, O Lord? When will You avenge our blood? When will it be when the Christ comes to reign and He avenges our blood? There will no longer be those cries. Instead, they will see God as the clear judge and that He will be completely just and His justice will be seen as right. In this passage, we see seven things about God which culminate in His clear justice. The first is found in verse 14, and that is that He is the righteous judge. God is the righteous judge. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. What is this third woe? Why mention the woe in this place? Didn't we just finish talking about the two witnesses last week? Remember, the two witnesses were the ones who came and and announced the coming of the Lord. They came during the first half of the tribulation and they're killed at the midpoint of the tribulation, somewhere in the midpoint of the tribulation. But after three and a half days, they're laying out on the ground, out in the street for all people to see their dead bodies. After three days, they arise. God gives them life and they come back to life and they are slowly raised up into heaven for all to see, including the enemies. And uh, so if that takes place at the midpoint of the tribulation, why then does John here in verse 14 talk about the second woe? Because based on what I've told you, the woes actually come at the end of the tribulation. You have the three woes, which are the three trumpet judgments. Trumpet judgments 5, 6, and 7. Look back to chapter 9, verse 12. We'll see the first woe. And I'll show you how this connects to the three trumpet judgments. The, the final three trumpet judgments. Chapter 9, verse, verse 12. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. The first woe is past. Okay? If we were to go to the end of chapter 8, we would see that the eagle climbs up or flies up to the height of the heaven and he says, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. For God's judgment is coming. And those three woes that he's talking about are the three coming trumpet judgments. The first of those three judgments, which actually is the fifth overall, begins in chapter 9, verse 1. Look at verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth. It goes on to talk about these locust-like creatures, these demons that come in the form of locusts, and they sting people for five months, but they're unable to kill them. And at the end of talking about, about that terrible time on the earth during the tribulation, the second part of the tribulation, this is what we read in verse 12. The first woe is past. So what I'm saying to you is that the fifth trumpet judgment is the first woe. And notice what it says in the second part of the verse. Behold, two woes are still coming. And then verse 13. Then the sixth angel sounded. I would argue that that second woe is the sixth trumpet judgment. And then I said in chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11, we have an interlude. Okay, So we're going through this timeline. We had 
the things which were, or the, the things which were, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, the things which were, chapter 1, chapters 2 and 3, the things which are, and the things which soon will take place. Beginning in chapter 4, we have the, the tribulation being explained for us. And that's exactly what happens in chapters 4 through 9. We have the first seven seals opened. You remember these judgments that come down? As the Lamb breaks open each one of the seals, He unveils more of God's judgment plan. And then at the opening of the seventh seal, we have the seven trumpet judgments. And the first four trumpet judgments uh, take place and they are uh, catastrophic events that come on the earth where you have a third of the sea being turned to blood. You have uh, a third of of the ships being destroyed there. You have the water being turned bitter and things like that. Now what happens, beginning with the fifth trumpet judgment, which is the woe judgment, you have these catastrophic events that take place on humans. God allows Satan to unleash these demons from the abyss where they are trapped. And they are able to come and torment people for five months. Because they hate humans. They want to destroy all who are made in the image of God. The second woe judgment, which is the sixth trumpet judgment, is where the demons come again. This time they come in the form of horsemen. And the horse are able to spew fire and brimstone out of their mouth and sting with their tails. And we're told that one-third of all mankind are killed by these demonic horsemen. And so we see the terrible, woeful judgments. See, that's why they're called woe judgments. They're woeful judgments. They're terrifying, horrifying, terrible judgments. So what I'm trying to show you from chapter 9, verses 12 and 13 is that the woe judgment was pointing back to the fifth trumpet judgment, the first one. The second two woe judgments are pointing to the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgment. Look back now to chapter 11, verse 14, because you'll see that this third woe judgment is attached to the seventh trumpet judgment. The second woe is passed. Behold, the third, third woe is coming quickly. And then the seventh angel sounded, and we could include the words, the trumpet. The trumpet to announce the warning like would often be done before battle in the Old Testament. The trumpet would be sounded to warn people of the coming danger. And this is exactly what the angels do in these trumpet judgments. Now, these, this final trumpet judgment is what sets off the cheers in heaven. And the reason is because the final, really, trumpet judgment uh, that, that will be unleashed. What, what is included in these trumpet judgments are the, the seven bowl judgments. Okay, So there's three series of seven, if you've been following along. Uh, there's the seven seal judgment. Where God unveils one seal, or God, the, the Lamb, I should say, takes the scroll from God, unveils one seal at a time. And then you have the seven trumpet judgments, and then you have the seven bowl judgments. Those happen in chapter 16. We'll read about them when we get there. Alright, but this seventh trumpet judgment actually includes those seven bowl judgments. And so the, the reason that there's so much cheering is in heaven is because we have the righteous judge and He's about to reign in a very clear way. He's about to, to show His power as King. <clears throat> so the first thing that we see in this passage is that God is the righteous judge. The second thing we see is that God is the undisputed King. Look at the second part of verse 15. This is what they're cheering about. 
And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. These loud voices in heaven recognize that God is the undisputed King and He reigns through His Son, Jesus Christ. We are coming to the climax of the book of Revelation. So far, we have seen that there have been some churches that have been in disarray. Some of them have been commended for their faith. Others have been uh, warned and judged because they have not been faithful to God. But beginning in chapter 4, we've seen this great struggle between Satan and, God, and, uh, and God's people. And so we, we sense this struggle and, and we feel this pull, this tension, and, and this uh, dissonance that there is on the earth, particularly during this time, when half of the world will be destroyed by the power of Satan. There will be a quarter that's destroyed in one of the sealed judgments, and then a third of the, the earth is then destroyed during the sixth trumpet judgment a half of the entire world's population. And so we feel the dissonance, the, the tension that there is. But then we come here now to, to the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12. You'll see next week and the following week, there is a great amount of rejoicing that there will be because we, now we come to the climax of the book where we start to, to unveil, we start to have God unveil for us what's really behind all of this. There is a battle going on, yes, between Satan and 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 uh, and and God's angels, and between Satan and his demons, and between us. But we start to see why that all takes place in the last part of this chapter and in chapter twelve. We're going to see that God reigns through Jesus Christ. This had been prophesied that God would be the clear, undisputed king in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 9. It says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and His name the only one. Is that the way it is right now? Are there people who think that God is the only one? There are some people, but do all people think that God is the only one? No, there are other gods who are trying to dispute uh, the authority. They're trying to to dispute whether they are in control. And there are people following these false gods. But it will be clear in that last day that God is the undisputed King through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice in verse 15 some, some words and how they are used, some verbs particularly. Notice in the praise of these loud voices, it says, "...the kingdom of the world has become..." Okay, that's past tense has become. Look at verse 17. We give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because You have taken Your great power and have begun to reign. Again, past tense. Why do these voices in heaven speak in this way? Why are they speaking in past tense as if Christ has already begun His reign? Because at this point in the tribulation, Christ is not. There's still much more devastation that's going to happen. In fact, these seven bold judgments will be the worst of all. Why is it that, that, that they speak as if Christ is already reigning? Well, I, I think they're actually speaking in a future sense, and we do this sometimes too. We use past tense verbs to speak about a future sense. For example, 
you say to your family member, listen, I forgot to get you a present for Christmas, but I wanted to buy you something for your kitchen. What would you like? And they say, a toaster. And you say, done. Okay, It is done. We speak in the past tense. It's already done. And they say, well, they don't say, well, where is it? Where's my toaster? I thought you said it's already done. You've already got my present. What do we mean by that? We mean, because you've asked for it and I've intended to buy it for you, it's as good as if it's already done. I'm planning to get it even though I'm using a past idea when I, when I speak of it in those terms. Turn to Romans chapter 8 because you'll see how the Apostle Paul does, does the same thing. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. He speaks about this progression uh, beginning in verse 29 about God having foreknown us, that He had planned, He, he, he uh, chose us before the foundation of the, the world, that He conformed us to the image of His Son. Verse 30 says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. Notice these are all past tense. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now what we expect there is that He also will glorify. <clears throat> are, are any of you glorified at this point? Are you in your glorified bodies, free from sin, suffering, death? Not at all. We're far from that. And yet Paul speaks of it in a past tense as if it's already going to take place. Why? Because he's saying that it is so sure that you will be glorified if you've been foreknown and called and justified. It is so sure that you will be glorified that I can speak about it in the past tense as if it has already taken place. Turn back to Revelation chapter 11 because that's what John does here with these voices in heaven. That's what these voices in heaven do. The angels speak of this coming kingdom as a certainty because the kingdom and the final judgments are near. They have been ordained by God and that makes them absolutely certain. And so he, they can speak about them in the past tense as if they've already taken place. It's like the crowd at the Masters tournament who are cheering on Phil Mickelson even though he hasn't made the final putt. He's already far enough in advance ahead of the other players behind him and he's got a close enough shot on his last one that he's he it's as good as if he's already has the trophy in his hands, even though he doesn't. And so the crowd can cheer as he's walking up to the 18th green. God is the almighty judge. God is the undisputed king. Number three, God is worthy of worship. Verse 16, God is worthy of worship. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. They fall down and worship God for His greatness, we'll see, and His wise actions. You remember from chapter 4, the 24 elders wore white robes and they sit on thrones. They wear golden crowns and, and they take their crowns and they toss them at the feet of the throne of God. Who did I say that these 24 elders represent? You remember? They represent white robes, crowns. Who is it that will be getting crowns? The angels get crowns? Church. Right, the church saints. Okay, now there is some debate over that. We talked about that when we were looking at that chapter. But I, I would argue that they are church saints. 
Now, why would church saints be so excited about the blowing of the seventh trumpet? Because that's how this passage begins. Verse 15, the sound of the angel blows the seventh trumpet. Why would they be so excited over this? Well, because they're, they, they are awaiting the vengeance of their blood. Remember, many of them have died and been persecuted for the sake of Christ. Paul says all who desire to be godly will suffer persecution. So, in some sense, all believers have suffered persecution. And there is, a, there is a groaning of the creation because things are not right. They're not as they should be. And so they're eagerly awaiting the time when things are made right. And when will that time be? When Jesus Christ reigns on the earth as King. For 1,000 years. And the eternal kingdom to follow. You see, they, they, they sense that it's, that it's very near. They're anticipating this coming kingdom. And they bow in worship to God. God is worthy of worship. And notice what they praise Him for in verse 17. We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were because you have taken your great power and have begun begun to reign. Number four, God is almighty. One of the things that they praise God for is His power, His limitless power. Notice at the end of the verse it says that you have taken your power and begun to reign. They give, they give thanks to God because what is about to take place is right and good. He is the almighty. God has taken what is rightfully His. You have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Did God ever deserve to to give up that power to at least a portion of it, let's say, to Satan? No, but that was part of His plan. And He takes back now the power that is His. He begins to reign through His Son, Jesus Christ, at the Millennial Kingdom. Number five, God is eternal. You see in the middle of that verse, verse 17, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were. Who are and who were. Now something's missing there. Look, Turn back to chapter 1 of Revelation. And I'll show you what is missing. Who are and who were they call God. Chapter 1, verse 4, this is what John calls the Almighty God. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. Okay, Notice that last phrase, who is to come, that, that God's reign is still coming. Now look at verse uh, 8. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. Chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Turn back to chapter 11, verse 17. And now you can see what's missing. We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were. But what's missing is who who are to come or who is to come. Why is that part missing? 
It's because His reign has begun. This is one of the great moments in the book of Revelation. Because the, the formula that we had been so accustomed to has been altered. And it's left out who is to come because now the kingdom is all but here. We're at the seventh trumpet judgment. It's sounded. It's, it's all but final. And now God's kingdom is very near. And so now He is simply the God who is and who was. No longer is He the one who is to come. Number six, God's judgment in verse 18 will be just and will be seen to be just. Verse 18 says, And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. God's judgment will be just and will be seen to be just. There's no mention here from the the angelic host or the church saints that are in heaven. There's no mention of innocent dying. That God, why would you allow something like this? There's no Psalm 73 type men, mentality. Why do the why do the uh, wicked why do the wicked prosper and why do the righteous suffer? There's no mention of that. They recognize that God is just in all of His judgments. And although it may seem as if God is not just in this life, because you are not treated as you should be treated, the righteous are not prospering as much as the wicked are. And in general, the wicked are not suffering as much as you are. Here, they will see that this rage that has come up from the nations, the nations will rage and it will all be found to be naught. That it's worthless in the sight of God. That it really meant nothing in the sight of God's big scheme. The nations were all enraged at God establishing Himself as King because they didn't want to submit to God. And here, the reign of God is as clear as ever when the people in heaven praise Him for His justice. God's wrath here in verse 18 is seen as a good thing. Remember, this is what they're praising God. Verse 17 says, We give you thanks. And then notice verse 18, The nations were enraged, enraged and your wrath came. We often see God's wrath as a bad thing, but they're actually giving thanks to God for His wrath. Why? Because His wrath is being poured out on the enemies who persecuted them. Now, the question comes up, should we be thankful for God persecuting our enemies or God judging our enemies or should we pray for God to judge our enemies? I would argue that we should not, at least in this lifetime. And the reason I say that is because we are still... In sinful, we, we still have sinful natures, don't we? You see, these people are in heaven. They have a glorified body. They they are they are uh, not fully glorified, but they are in a place where where they have no longer any sin or any temptation to be drawn away from God. They are confirmed in their holiness, we could say. And so, when they praise God for His judging of the enemies, that's no problem for them. But I would argue that we should be careful when doing that. Um, this is not just a time of wrath and judgment. This is also 
uh, a time of reward. Did you see that in verse 18? And the time came for the dead, middle of the verse, time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets. Okay, so there's going to be rewarding of the prophets. And then the next part, and the saints and those who fear your name. I believe that's the second category. So you have God rewarding the prophets of the Old Testament who had been persecuted as well, as well as the saints in the New Testament, both small and great. We stand on the same foundation when we get to heaven, don't we? We can't say that we're any better than anyone else who made it there. We're all there on the grace of God. The least of His saints is accepted into heaven just like the greatest. And so we learned several things about God's judgment. That it is certain, it is final, it is horrific. It is a terrible thing to fall in the hands of an angry God and it is righteous. So we see in this passage that God is the Almighty Judge, that God is the Undisputed King, that God is worthy of worship, that God is the Almighty, that God is eternal, that God is just. just. And finally, number seven, God is present or God is near. Verse 19. And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened and the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple and there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Now last week we talked about the temple on earth, right? We talked about the uh, the restoration of the Jewish temple and true worship happening in the first part of the tribulation until the Antichrist takes over and puts up his own image there in, in the temple. But this is talking about a different temple. Look at verse 19. And the temple of God which is in heaven... So we're talking about the temple that's in heaven. Now, now previously, John had seen God on his throne, right? With the peals of thunder, the lightning that was around his throne. And it was an amazing scene. There was a rainbow around him, an emerald rainbow. In chapter 4, he saw the altar. Okay, so we're talking about some of these images from the Old Testament. Now he sees something even more profound. You see that in verse 19? And the temple of God which is in heaven was opened and the ark of His covenant appeared in His temple. Now He sees where the ark resides. In what part of the temple in the Old Testament did the ark reside? In the Holy of Holies, right? The most holy place. So what is John getting a vision into here? He's getting a vision into the very presence of God. No longer is it just the throne and the altar. Now He's into that that beautiful cube where only the priests could go. And John gets a vision into the most holy place, into the deepest corridor of heaven, the place where God is in an unmediated way. You don't have to see God through Jesus Christ. You can see Him directly. John gets a vision of this. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant is a symbol of what? Isn't it a symbol of mercy? Remember when the, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen and, and David tried to take it back from the Philistines and bring it back to the temple where it belonged? And, and the Ark was start to, starting to fall. Uzzo reached up his hand to try to, to save it and he was killed. And David said, all right, we need to stop. We need to figure out what, what we're doing wrong here. He found out that they weren't supposed to be carrying it on a cart. They were supposed to be carrying it on poles. And so where did the Ark go? It went to the house of, of some man there and what happened to that house? The house was blessed that the man and his 
his his home was blessed because of that ark. You see, the ark is a symbol of God's presence, His mercy. And so, John is able to view this secret place, this this great and powerful uh, throne room of God where He resides. And that's why you have all these visions at the end of the verse, flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder, all these powerful things that surround God. John is now able to see the deepest perspective of the spiritual battle that is going on. And I can tell you that the next two weeks this will become very clear for you because of chapter 12. John now gives us a picture of what this spiritual battle really is. And he helps us to see that it is a very real cosmic battle that's going on. But the point of this verse is that God is present and that God is reigning. You see, if we want visible proof that God is reigning, we can't find it. We can't go to some palace over in Israel and find God on a throne there and say, Oh, God is reigning. We've seen it. We have to believe by faith. And here what John is doing is he's helping us to show helping to show us that although it seems as if Satan is the one that's on the throne and he is ruling and he is winning, that's not true. I've seen into the very throne room of God myself, and God is on the throne and he is reigning. He is present. He is near. And one day that will be clear to all. Both the small and the great, both believers and unbelievers will recognize that God has always been reigning. We see from this passage that God is in control of His earth and He is not frustrated. God is not up there wringing His hand thinking, how can I overcome Satan? What can I do next to to try to thwart him? in His plan. God's not doing that. God is not frustrated in His plan. He is carrying His plan out. Mark Dever says, As you are today, you will not always be. As the earth is today, it will not always be. The incidents and accidents of this life are playing directly into the hands of the potter who is shaping the clay as seems best to him. Do you believe that God is on that throne? On the throne of the universe and that He is reigning? Or do you think that He has temporarily been put aside? And that He's allowed for a time Satan to have overall control? The message of Revelation is that Christ is coming and that Christ will win. It doesn't seem right right now, does it? It seems like Satan is here and Satan is winning. But there will be a day when you as a believer in Jesus Christ will be victorious. Finally victorious. When you will reign on thrones with Jesus Christ. The final judgment is coming. The kingdom of our Lord has become the kingdom of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. There's two things that will happen in that final judgment. The wicked will be judged and the righteous will be rewarded. And those uh, those will be final. The 
the wicked will be destroyed and then it will be, they will be finally destroyed and believers will be rewarded and will be so forever. What a great prospect to think that that we will be able to live with God forever. John gives us a window into this throne, into this temple of God that's in heaven. But do you realize in the new heavens and the new earth there is no temple? You know why that is? Chapter 22, uh, chapters 21 and 22 tell us it's because the Lord God Almighty is the temple and the Lamb that they will reign in a way where we will be able to be in their presence always. It's not going to be like the Old Testament where God's presence would come down into the Holy of Holies and only the priests could go in there and only once a year and only with the sacrifice. We no longer need any of those things because now we will live inside of the Holy of Holies. See, this is what God has always been doing from the very beginning of time. He has been leading people to a place where He can live among them and where He will be their God and we will be His people. And that is why the angels and the saints who are in heaven are praising God as if it's already done because the seventh trumpet has sounded and it's as sure as if it's already here. Let's pray. Our Father, we admit that that it is difficult to see exactly what you are doing in this world. We don't know all of your ways. How can we understand your ways? They're far higher than us as the heavens are higher above the earth, so your ways are above our ways. But we do recognize that you do reign because your word tells us that you are reigning now. We also recognize that Satan is carrying out your plan to a degree, allowing things to happen as they are, allowing this creation to grow and allowing this struggle to be in our lives, allowing the failures to come, but we recognize that that's not the way it will be forever because Christ will reign. Christ will reign as King and we look forward to that day. We, we anticipate it with, with great hope. Not in the hope that we hope we get a certain Christmas gift this year, but in the, the sense that we have great confidence that this will happen because you have always done what you said you will do. You are a trustworthy God. You are faithful. Nothing that you have promised has ever failed. And so we can trust you and we can praise you because you are the Lord Almighty. You are just. And one day you will be seen to be just by all people. We pray that you would speed that day, that you would send your, your son quickly for a final time to come to this earth and restore all peace. Peace in Jerusalem, peace on the whole earth. We know that that part of that was was uh, brought through his birth. He had to come in order to bring peace, but but really his first advent was only designed to bring division. That ultimately peace will not come until the millennial kingdom. May you help us to fix our eyes on that coming hope, that coming joy that we will have and that we would lead others to do the same. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.